The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. The word of God speaks to us. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain." On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. This is God's word to us. Thanks, Madison. Well, good morning. It's a wonderful day to be gathering together, so I'm super glad you're here. My name's Brandon. If I've never met you, I get the privilege of being one of the pastors here. And so in this moment, I want to invite you uh, to pray for me as I pray for you as we dive in to 1 Corinthians 15. Father, thanks for the church gathered. I'm grateful that we get to gather on Sundays to, to worship and sing and confess and be reassured of the truth of the gospel in the same way that Paul is reminding the Corinthians of the gospel that they received. And so, Father, I pray uh, for my friends in this room. I, I pray that you would, you would meet each of us as we need to be met in the truths of the gospel. And I pray that this morning would not just be a passive intake of information, but that it would actually equate to transformation. God, I pray that you would transform us by your grace. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, Adoniram Judson was born in 1788 in Massachusetts, and he was raised in a home with parents who loved Jesus. And while attending Brown University, he became a part of a friend group that doubted the claims of Jesus, and they were skeptics of Christianity. And he graduated from college a convinced unbeliever. But shortly after college, Adoniram's close friend tragically died, and he was shaken because he knew his friend did not have faith in Jesus. And he began wrestling with the truths of the gospel that he had grown up with and the skepticism that he had walked away from college with. And then although still an unbeliever, he was too afraid, though, to remain a skeptic because he was shaken to his core by the death of his friend. So he did what anybody would do. He applied for seminary. <laughs> and he was actually granted special permission to attend uh, this Andover Seminary. And a few months in, he had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. 
And he started following him. While at seminary, God called Adoniram, as well as many of his friends, to the mission field in the Far East. And in 1812, in the span of two weeks, Adoniram married Anne Hasseltine, and they set sail for Calcutta, India. The Judsons and their boatmates, Samuel and Harriet Newell, became the first Americans to actually choose to relocate from the States for the purpose of spreading the gospel to unreached peoples. After arriving in Calcutta, though, they continued on to Burma, which is modern-day Myanmar, and the Judsons uh, immediately began learning the Burmese language and culture, believing that both were necessary for an effective gospel proclamation. And Bible translation became a key element in the Judsons' mission, both translating the scriptures into the language of Burmese and Pali. By the end of his life, Adoniram had translated the Bible into Burmese. He had edited several dictionaries and lexical tools for Burmese Christians. And he had actually authored and translated numerous theological works. But throughout their time in Burma, the Judsons faced many trials, hardships. He spent a time in prison, quite a bit of time imprisoned. He got sick. His wife got sick. Their kids got sick. So many other things happened to them. But motivated by the love and grace they had received in Jesus, the Judson spent 40 years as missionaries to the Burmese people. Thousands of people came to Christ. Churches were planted. And countless others have actually come to Christ because of their Bible translation. The Judson's lives were so changed by the gospel that they were willing to give them away for the sake of the gospel. Because friends, this morning, as we've been celebrating and worshiping already, the gospel changes everything. It changes everything for the Judsons, for the people they reached in Burma, for us. And so this is what I think we see in our passage today. The gospel changes everything. And so the entire letter of 1 Corinthians is about what it means to live all of life in light of the gospel of Jesus. In chapter 1 of this letter, Paul makes a contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. He makes a contrast between the wisdom of the world and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying there are two kinds of people in the world, people who live their lives according to the wisdom of the world, or people who live their lives by the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So Paul's desire in this letter to the Corinthians has been to lay out and to model what it means to live in light of the gospel. And the climax of that conversation happens here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand He wants us this morning to understand we'll never know how to live in light of the gospel in marriage, in parenting, in free time, in work, in school, in finances, in your sexuality. We'll never know how to live in light of the gospel if we don't understand the power and the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. So over the next five weeks, including today, we're going to be discussing the implications of the resurrection all throughout chapter 15 of this book. And Paul argues that without the resurrection, our faith is useless. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, Christianity is just another belief system. 
It has no power to change our lives. But indeed, as we know, Christ did raise from the dead. So what does that mean for us today? The first thing we see in our passage this morning is that the gospel changes everything. So we should live as people with hope and power. Hope and power. Verses 1 and 2. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In these verses, Paul describes how the gospel benefits those who believe it. The gospel is of eternal benefit for those that receive it and those that stand in it. And it's interesting here that Paul uses the word remind, that he would have to remind the Corinthians of the gospel and the resurrection power of Jesus. How could they possibly forget that Jesus was dead and he came back to life? You would think something as miraculous and glorious and powerful as someone coming back to life wouldn't need reminding. That it would be daily remembered and daily discussed. So why would Paul have to remind them? Well, here's what I believe the answer is. Paul's not just talking about a theological fact that Jesus resurrected, although that's true. He's talking about the way the Corinthians live their lives on a daily basis because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Paul's talking about the available power we have to live daily through the gospel with the resurrection at its core. Look at Romans 8:11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The scriptures tell us that it was the Holy Spirit who entered into the tomb and raised Jesus from the dead. And we have to see this connection. The Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the one dwelling in those whose faith is in Christ. This gospel is what the Corinthians are to stand in. This gospel is what the Corinthians are being saved by. This means the power of the resurrection is living in every Christian. Every son and every daughter has the power of the resurrection living within their mortal bodies. So we can live as people with hope and power because the Holy Spirit that brought forth the resurrection in Jesus is the same that's living in believers. And by this power, we're able to live lives of hope. And by this power, we're able to, to, for the chains of sin to be broken and we can stand. We can live in light of brokenness and suffering. We can live lives of power. And friends, this is, this is good news for us. Praise be to God that this is true for those whose faith is in Jesus. And we can, we can live, though, without thinking about the resurrection for our daily lives. In the press of everyday life. In the press of singleness. In the press of marriage. In the press of school. In the press of work. In the press of stress and busyness. The press of our weekly schedules. The press of, children, of raising children and parenting. We forget we, we forget who we are in Jesus and we forget what we've received in Jesus. And this is why Paul is reminding the Corinthians. God actually harnessed the forces of nature. 
And he controlled the events of all of human history so that at a certain time, his son would come and live a perfect life. And he would die an acceptable death in our place and rise again, conquering sin, Satan, evil, and even death itself. He did all of that for us so that everything in our lives would be different. If that's true, then the gospel changes everything. So we should live as people with hope and power. You know, Paul preached the gospel. He went to the Corinthians and he preached the gospel. They received it. They were standing in it and they were being saved by it. Friends, we must also hold fast to the gospel. We must hold fast so that we're not believing in vain. So we can daily follow Jesus. So that we can love one another and minister to those who are giving their lives to the wisdom of the world. Three months ago, my mother, Kim, passed away. And this was after a six-year fight against cancer. My mom was a wonderful woman. She was compassionate. She was caring. She was humble. She was hospitable. She was really all-around lovely. And many of you in this room actually knew her, got to meet her and prayed for her. It was really sweet. There are so many stories that I could share to encapsulate these characteristics, but stories ranging from when I was a child to actually watching her interact with and love my own kids. But there's one story that I'll cherish for all of this life and the life to come. It was a conversation in a moment that we had together in a hospital room in 2017. After my mom was diagnosed with cancer, she immediately underwent surgery. And post-surgery, she remained in the hospital for a little over a week, and she was grateful that the surgery was over, but she was also really scared. She was really fearful of, of the uncertainty that was, that was coming. And so during her stay in the hospital, I got to visit quite a few times, and each time she shared with me how she was feeling, and she actually started asking some really deep questions, questions of meaning of life type questions. Questions like, do you think I'll go to heaven if I die? Do, how do I know for sure if I'll go to heaven? Why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? Real hard questions. And so we began to process those questions, and so we ended up praying together a lot. We ended up going to the scriptures together to lot, a lot. And one afternoon in our hospital room, we were reading Ephesians chapter 2, and we discussed how all humans fall short, how we're all sinners in our thoughts, our words, our actions, both towards God vertically and towards other people. We discussed how this breaks our relationship with God. It, it breaks our relationship with other people. And in fact, how sin has broken everything in our world, including our bodies and including creation itself. And my mom asked, how do I fix this? How do I have a relationship with God if I'm broken and sinful? And we stumbled upon Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the 
gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And in that moment, my mom realized uh, for the first time, I, I truly believe in her life, that she was sinful. She was separated from God. She, you know, she had thought most of her life that she was, quote, a good person. And she realized, but she was broken. This world is broken. And she realized that she, did, she could not earn a relationship with God by being a person, a good person, but instead she could be forgiven and have a relationship with God because of what Jesus did. Jesus, he lived a perfect sinless life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And that salvation is indeed a gift. It's grace. And the definition of grace is that it's something that's freely given. After my mom placed her faith in Jesus, I watched a, an unexplainable peace fall over her. She took a deep breath, she smiled, and she asked if we could pray. And she prayed one of the most beautiful and tender prayers I think I've ever heard. And we just wept and celebrated together. And then she actually answered one of her own questions. Why is this happening to me? She said, maybe this is happening to me so that other people will come to know God and have a relationship with him. And I just agreed. You know, my wife, Molly, my kids and I are sad and still grieving the passing of my mom, but because of the power of the resurrection, we can, grieve, we can be people who grieve with deep hope. We can be people who, de, uh, who grieve with deep joy because Jesus saved her. So what can wash away our sins? It's the hope and the power of the gospel. What can deliver us from difficult circumstances? It's the hope and the power of the gospel. What can give us hope even in the face of death? It's the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. This leads us to our second thought from this passage. The gospel changes everything. And it's of first importance. Verses three through seven. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas or the apostle Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, his own brother, then to all the apostles. And so when Paul thinks about life, when he thinks about everything that makes up daily life, he says, the most important thing about me, the most important thing in my life is the gospel. Nothing, nothing is more important than this. He's saying, Corinthians, not only am I reminding you, but I came to you and I delivered to you as of first important that which I actually received from the resurrected Lord himself face to face. If you've forgotten, you can actually go and talk to Peter and James and those other 500 people that I showed myself to. They'll remind you as well. Now, this would be a little frightening, but track with me for a second. Humor me. If we were to watch a video of the last eight weeks of your life, what would we conclude is the most important thing in life to you? <laughs> 
we would probably see moments of, of happiness and sadness, moments when you're irritated or even angry. Maybe we would see some of you sitting behind a desk for hours on your phone or in class or sitting in long car lines waiting to pick your kids up from school. Maybe we would see moments of you serving your spouse uh, and your children at home. Maybe we would see moments of you fighting with your spouse and fighting with your kids at home. You know, we would see sweet moments. We would see hard moments. Maybe we would see you racing kids around town from event to event. But what would appear to be the most important thing in your life? Paul is stating that more important than anything else is the gospel and the resurrection of our Lord. More important than your career. More important than your marriage. More important than education. More important than money. More important than your house and your stuff. More important than parenting even. And more important than your social life. Now, are all of those things important? Sure, they are. But the gospel is to come first above all of that. The gospel comes first so that we can live all of those things, so that we can live our daily lives for God's glory. And if your faith is in Jesus, Paul is saying that the most important thing about you, your identity is in the gospel with the resurrection at its core the gospel is the thing that helps you make sense out of life and it helps you make sense of how to live it. In his book, Gospel Fluency, Jeff Vanderstelt says it this way. He says, belief in the gospel is not a one-time decision or a conviction that we need salvation only for our past lives and our future afterlives. Belief in the gospel is an ongoing expression of our ongoing need for Jesus. Standing firm in it means we continue to put our faith in him for our past, our present, and our future. And gospel fluency is like becoming fluent in a new language. You must immerse yourself in it until you actually start to think about life through it. Becoming fluent in the gospel happens the same. After believing it, we have to intentionally rehearse it to ourselves and to others and immerse ourselves in its truth. Friends, the gospel has the power to shape all of life. It's that powerful. We must stand in the gospel and allow it to not just work in us, but to work through us. We must allow it to infiltrate and change every area of our lives. And this happens not overnight, but it happens over a lifetime of communing with God of repentance and living the gospel out in all of life. The gospel, friends, must be the means by which we understand life. It must be the lens in which we look through as we look at our lives. And in the gospel, we can begin to understand who we are, we can understand our purpose on this earth, and we can prioritize what's most important in our life because the gospel changes everything and it's of most importance. Paul goes on in verses four through seven and he actually articulates the truth of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised back to life on the third day. Then he appeared to Peter and all of these people. And Paul uses the phrase in accordance with the scriptures twice. And I point this out because I think it's important. Jesus's work on our behalf didn't just come from nowhere. It didn't just come out of thin air. 
It was actually planned from eternity past and forecasted throughout the Old Testament. The plan for Jesus' death is described in places like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. His resurrection talked about in Hosea, the book of Hosea and Jonah in the psalm. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are historical facts. And if you're here this morning and you're exploring Christianity or you're exploring the claims of Jesus, know that Jesus was a real man. He was 100% God and 100% man. And as I've been sharing this morning, he died for my sins and he died for yours. And in his death, he took on him the penalty that was owed for our sin and in turn offers righteousness, righteousness before God and eternal life for all that believe. John 1, 12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And hear this also. Sin is not primarily about your behavior or breaking some moral codes. You may have grown up in an environment where sin was just a list of things that you weren't supposed to do. But certain actions can for sure evidence sin. But this is not what sin is at the core. Sin is an attempt to put anyone or anything in the place of God. Putting anyone, including yourself or anything, in the place of God. Not to worship God, to not worship God as he is, is sin. Sin's the root cause of our spiritual death. It's the reason for the corruption, the decay, and the brokenness, and the evil in our world. One pastor put it this way, answering the question, what is sin? It's the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted, the commands of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. Sin is when we put anything in God's place, which means that all of us have sinned. In accordance with the scriptures, Romans 3.23 For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Or Psalm 41, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And that's exactly why Jesus came. And that's exactly why Paul is reminding the the Corinthians of this truth. And according to the scriptures, Jesus' death, it's an atoning sacrifice, which means a cleansing and a covering for our sin. According to the scripture, Jesus' death was a substitution on the cross. Jesus became our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. According to the scriptures, Jesus was buried. And that matters because Jesus was actually dead. There were some traditions and rumors popping up in the first century that Jesus didn't actually die. He was just unconscious or something along those lines. But he didn't actually die die. No, friends, he, he died. His body was devoid of life, and Jesus's lifeless body was placed in a tomb. And he didn't just suffer, he suffered willingly, and he gave up his life willingly for you and for me. 
According to the scriptures, on the third day, Jesus raised back to life. Because without the resurrection, there's no gospel. There's no good news without the resurrection. Because if he didn't resurrect, then all he did was die. And Jesus' resurrection means that he's ruling right now. And he's reigning right now. You know, there was a power. And it was the Holy Spirit reached into the tomb poured through Jesus' lifeless body and raised him from the dead. And according to the scriptures, after Jesus was raised, he appeared to many. And this is important because the gospel isn't fantasy. It's not a man-made story. Jesus came back to life and actually physically walked to the earth again. He appeared in his glorified body to real people who saw him and touched him. And so we don't need to be ashamed of this gospel because according to the scriptures, it's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. The gospel is powerful and of first importance because Jesus is alive right now. And our reality this morning is that he's with us. He's aware of this gathering. He's aware of what we're doing. And his spirit is here and present because he is alive and he wants to do something with us. He wants to do something in us. He wants to change us. An encounter with resurrection power changes things, changes people. And so don't write the resurrection off as exciting information for new Christians. Resurrection power changes and continues to change who we are and what we live for in our everyday lives until we see him face to face. This was Paul's experience. So third and last, the gospel changes everything, including Paul, a man who persecuted others for their faith in Jesus. Verses eight through 11. Last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles. I'm actually unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so you believed. Paul describes himself as unworthy to be an apostle. Because he persecuted people. And we can see this part of his story in Acts 7, 8, and 9. Starting with Stephen's amazing sermon in Acts 7 where he's proclaiming the gospel. Paul was there. But at this time, his name was Saul. The crowd was enraged. They were angry at what Stephen was saying and the claims he was making about Jesus. And Saul actually stood by holding the mob's coats as he was stoned and murdered. Acts 8.1 says, and Paul approved of his execution. Verse 3 says, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul was legit persecuting Christians. He was so against the claims and the truths about Jesus that he was willing to kill and he was willing to break apart families. And then he actually received orders to go to Damascus and do the same thing. Find Christians, bind them, bring them back to Jerusalem and punish them. But on his way, Saul had an encounter with the powerful, resurrected Jesus Christ. 
And the presence of Jesus physically knocked Saul to the ground. And he was blinded as he spoke face to face with the resurrected Jesus. And then Jesus sent Ananias, one of his followers, to meet Saul in Damascus. And if I'm Ananias, I'm not going. (laughs) And this is what the Lord told Ananias. He said, go meet with Saul, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And so Ananias obeys. He meets Saul. He lays hands on him. He prays. Saul regains his sight, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul's path crossed paths with the resurrected Jesus and his life was changed. Everything about his life changed, even his name from Saul to Paul. Paul was baptized in Damascus and he immediately started proclaiming the gospel. You know, Paul was on track to become the Pharisee of Pharisees, but the gospel changed that. Paul was persecuting the church, but instead he became a church planter. The gospel changed that. The gospel changed every aspect of his life. And on the road to Damascus, Paul encounters the changing power of the resurrected Jesus, and his road from Damascus was one of life, forgiveness, purpose. The gospel changes everything. I love what Paul says in verse 10. He says, but, I, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. By the grace of God, he was a changed man. He was forgiven and cleansed and full of love when prior he had been full of hate. Church, this is true for you and I this morning. Our lives are messy. This church is messy But by the grace of God, we are what we are. And we must give the grace of God all the credit for the change in our lives. You can't receive the grace of God without being changed by it. And the changes surely don't come all at once. Changes are not complete, though, until we pass to the next life. We are indeed being changed Charles Spurgeon says, by the grace of God, we not only are what we are, but we also remain what we are. We should long ago have ruined ourselves and damned ourselves if Christ had not kept us by his almighty power and grace. And friends, Paul did not take advantage of God's grace on him. He actually says, I worked hard, harder than others, and still gave the credit to God's grace. If Paul had not worked as hard as he did, the grace of God would still have been given to him. But in some measure, it would have been given in vain. Grace, by definition, is given freely. But how we receive the grace will help to determine how effective the gift of grace really is in our lives and throughout our lives. Paul knew that God gives his grace, that we work hard, And then the work of God is completed in us and and in others. And we work in partnership with God, not because he needs us, but because he graciously and mercifully wants us to share in the good work that he's doing. And Paul actually wrote earlier in 1 Corinthians, for we are God's fellow workers. So we all must trust God. We must rely on him and then get to work building his kingdom together. The gospel changes everything. 
So what does this mean for us this morning? I want to do something a little different, so track with me. I want to invite you to do a little work on your own. So I'm going to pose two questions to you. They're going to be on the screen. I want you to write them down, and then I'm going to, we're going to give you the three to five minutes here just to kind of process through them on your own, to pray, and to write down what the Spirit reveals to you. So pull out your journals, pull out your phones, whatever, whatever you want to write this down on. But here's question number one. Where do you need the grace of God and the power of the resurrection to change you? Where do you need the grace of God and the power of the resurrection to change you? Is it your marriage and how you love your spouse? Is it how you go about your work or how you steward your money? Is it how you steward your singleness or your sexuality? Is there sin or even habitual sin in your life that you need to repent from today? Is it how you spend your leisure or free time? Is it courageously maybe sharing the gospel with one of your family members or a friend or one of your three? So that's question one. Question two, where do you feel God calling you by his grace to invest your life in building his kingdom? Where do you feel God calling you by his grace to invest your life in building his kingdom? Maybe it's a call to give your life to others in discipleship, to become a spiritual father or mother in this church family, to see others mature towards Jesus. Maybe you yourself, maybe you yourself need further discipling and equipping. Who could you ask to invest in you? Maybe it's serving in our church family. Maybe that's a Sunday, maybe it's other, other things. Maybe it's making a commitment to love and care for those that you're in community with. Maybe it's actually leading a, a new community group. Maybe it's planting a community group for the first time in the neighborhood where you reside. So I don't know what it is for you, but I'm asking and I've been praying all week that the Holy Spirit would meet you in this very moment. So I want you to take the next three to four minutes just to process those questions, pray, Write down what the Holy Spirit gives to you.